Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. It's Annie McManus here. Hello there, it's so good to have you back and to be able to bring you another conversation about life-changing events. This week, our guest is TV presenter Sophie Morgan. At the age of 18, just about to start her adult life, Sophie was in a car crash and was instantly paralysed from the chest down. She was told she would never walk again. Now, Sophie is one of the first and only female disabled television hosts in the world, as well as an award-winning disability advocate. She has presented at the Paralympics in London, Rio and most recently Tokyo in 2020, has led groundbreaking documentaries such as Dispatches and Unreported World, is a regular Loose Women panellist and is now hosting her own primetime Channel 4 series, Living Wild, How to Change Your Life. If you love this podcast, you will love that TV show. It's all about people who do drastic changes in their lives. Also, Sophie's memoir, Driving Forwards, is out now on paperback and is a remarkable read. Sophie is incredibly resilient. And in this conversation, she tells us about the day everything changed, talking us through her life before and after the crash and how she adapted to being in the world as a disabled person. What I found the most amazing thing about Sophie is her positivity and this endless drive that she has. She is an unstoppable force. If all of us could face adversity with the fearlessness and even half of the determination that Sophie possesses, we would be winning. You will leave this conversation ready to take on the world. Welcome to Changes, Sophie Morgan. Sophie Morgan, welcome to Changes. Hi! I'm so excited. Oh, Annie, it's so nice to meet you. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, good. Actually, it's great to be chatting with you. I've been like so engrossed in your book. You are one of the only female TV presenters with a physical disability, like not just in the UK but globally. What have you learned about public perceptions of differently abled people since you've been on television? Wow, a lot, I think. I mean, so I suppose I should start at the beginning and say the first thing I ever learned about people's attitudes towards disability when I was first on telly was when I I had been injured for about maybe six or seven months, not long. And I'd been approached by the BBC because they were casting for a new reality show called Beyond Boundaries, where they were going to be taking a group of disabled people pan disability so a a wide range of physical Mm -hmm. sensory impairments all sorts and we would be going on an expedition from one side of Nicaragua to the other side of Nicaragua on foot right I got the gig to go and I was like brilliant I'm going to use this platform to to show people about disability because I had learned so much myself I'd only been injured about as I said not long and I had 
been on this steep learning curve of what disability means. It was such a whole new world I'd come into. And so I was fascinated to see the response to that. And that's when I started to realise that people's attitudes, I suppose a little bit like the attitudes I had had not long before, mm. when I was, you know, younger and I wasn't a disabled person, they were pretty outdated, pretty limited. At best, I'd say slightly ignorant. At worst, I'd say outright damaging. Right. At that time, certainly, that was 20 years ago almost, we hadn't seen disability on screen. We hadn't, it was very new and it was a privilege to be a part of that conversation as it started to kind of hit the mainstream. But I mean, it's, it's taken a long time. It wasn't until you fast forward to things like the Paralympics, which was what, 2012? Yeah. You know, a long time after when I did that, that was 2004. So that's when we started to see the conversation start to become more nuanced, more accurate, more authentic. And we're still working towards it. You know, we're still trying to get there. Yeah. So it's definitely improved over the years. I think television is a great tool for changing attitudes. In fact, in my opinion, it's the greatest, or it's certainly the greatest tool I have yeah. for changing people's perceptions. But there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I want to speak to you about the Paralympics further into the conversation, but let's talk about change, which is what this podcast is rooted in. You know, you are an advocate for change, changing people's perceptions. What is your relationship, your personal relationship with that word? It's quite easy to sort of assume everyone has the same attitude to change. It's quite a naive thing to say, perhaps. Yeah. But I love change. I seek it out. I, I lean into it in such an active way that I get quite shocked when people go, oh, no, I'm scared of change. I, I'm not, yeah. oh, really, why? But yeah, so to answer your question, I do, I, I love change. There's two reasons. The first reason I love change is because when the unexpected does happen to you, when change does come around, and it's the type of change that for you is possibly the worst type of change imaginable, to give context to that, to anyone who doesn't know what happened to me, I was paralyzed in a car crash when I was 18 years old. Yeah. And that, so I had that whole conversation around, you know, you're never going to walk again and then had to have all that, unpack all of what that meant. Mm. And when that happened, um, you might assume that would be the worst kind of change imaginable for a young girl. When I came to realise that that change actually brought around a huge amount of positivity for me and an, an opportunity and a shift in perspective in the right way and that I gained a lot from that change as bad as it might appear, mm. I realized then that actually, wow, what's the worst that can happen? You know, change, change is such an interesting place to grow and why not seek it out? And then I think the second layer to why I love change is because I live with so many limitations as to what I can do mm. as a physically disabled person. If there are things that are, are possible for me to do, if there are changes that I can make, if there's opportunity out there, and I let my fear get in the way of it, if, if my fear is the only thing from holding me back, yeah. then I'm doubly paralyzed. I'm doubly disabled, if that makes sense, it right? Does, so yeah. I'm like, right, okay, if there's my disability getting in the way, that's one thing, I can't change that. But then if I get in my own way and don't seek out the newness, this, the opportunity mm -hmm. to change, I'm stopping my life even more. Um, so I almost go, right, oh, hold on a minute, I'm scared of something. I'm, I'm, what am I scared of here and, and if I'm scared of it, I go, right, you've got to lean into it. And I think that's made me really open to change in all its forms. You, in your book, Driving Forwards, you describe yourself as free-spirited, filthy, ravenous, rebellious, an incorrigible wild child. You say in the book that it felt like there was a before and after. Mm. Tell me about Sophie Morgan before the accident. What were you like 
what are your memories, I suppose, of your young childhood? They were really wonderful memories. I cherish them like I can't even describe to you how how much they mean to me, those memories of my first 18 years of my life, yeah. which were spent walking and not just walking as you described, like I was... Running, running uh, sprinting. Running, I was just... <laughs> I was all over the shop. I was a really uh, active person. So, okay, so I mean, in terms of where I grew up, I grew up um, in the countryside. I grew up in the forest, actually, in Ashdown Forest. People know it because it's where um, A.A. Milne based the story of Winnie the Pooh. So it was really outdoorsy. My mum had a lot of animals when we were little. We had lots of dogs and all sorts, and I loved them. They were my best best pals. So I kind of, I thought I was a bit of an animal. I think that's why I describe myself as slightly ravenous and filthy because I was always out in the mud and the dirt and playing with my with my brother in the woods. And, and so I, that was the formative years. And then I I hit my teenage years and I did go a little bit off, off piece. I went a bit, I rebelled quite hard for, for me, certainly. I went from being quite a sweet kid to being quite an, a difficult kid. Yes. And um I uh, yeah, hit my teens and and just kind of decided that I wanted to try everything. I was like, right, I want it all. I, I can't I can't get enough. And I uh, I just went into you know all of the things that a lot of teenagers do. I got really stuck into drinking and music, boys, fun. I just was like, give it to me, give it to me. And then obviously in the meantime, I had to manage school. So I was like, oh, you know, I was like oh, constantly a little bit on edge because I wanted to so, to be free. That's all I write about in my diary. So I wanted to be free, yeah. whatever that meant. Yeah. And I basically, I got kicked out of the school that I was in. I think the main reason was because I was buying alcohol for everybody because right. I was that kid that was the bigger bigger kid. So I yeah. didn't get ID'd, you yeah. know. Uh, anyway, so then I, I ended up going up to Scotland, actually. My mum's Scottish and I was in, I just kept getting in trouble and she was like, I think you need to go away. You need to just be go- gone, like yeah. go and sort yourself out. And and the school that I went to was a, was kind of renowned for being an outdoorsy school. And I think she thought, oh, you'll really benefit from that. So off I went to Scotland and, and did get stuck into the, the outdoor world and, and really like benefited from that. I thrived up there, but I, I still was not behaving particularly well. But yeah, got through by the skin of my teeth, got through, got my exam results and actually that was the day that I was paralyzed was the day I got my exam results so I kind of made it through got all the way to the end and uh and then yeah everything changed can you talk us through the day how has your perception of the day changed do you feel like it's kind of been told so much that it's kind of polished into something that is unreal nearly I think so and I I would say a lot of people who've been through trauma probably if they talk about it enough it does doesn't it it kind of becomes that oh this a b c d it's just a story now yeah and in fact I've come to realize actually since writing my book about what happened and then also subsequently going into some therapy about it that actually it wasn't the biggest trauma in my life weirdly that there's been things that have happened since that have been you know weirdly harder for me so it was actually yeah. it's not that painful because a lot of it I don't really remember I do remember the the day mm. it's like it was yesterday I was with my mum we had this conversation Annie which well I'll never forget I was getting dressed for a party that we were going to to celebrate the end of school and um she stood next to me in the mirror and she's like god you've all grown up you know 
Sophie, shit, you've made it, you're an adult now, and this is the next chapter of your life, I'm so excited for you. And we had this conversation, and, um, and then she dropped me at the train station, and I went up to Scotland where I was going to go and get the results. Mm. And I remember waving goodbye to her. And I was really like, bye. <laughs> Fucking can't wait. Off yeah, I go. Yeah. And she was like, I think she was happy to see me go. You know, she got, she'd done her job. She's yeah. a mum. She yeah. got me to that point. Yeah. She got me through by the skin of my teeth, as I said. And that day was amazing. It was just a really hot summer's day because it's August. It's that time when all the kids yeah. are getting their results. Yeah. You know, the energy in the summer is just palpable. Everyone's buzzing and... And uh, I'd had an amazing summer as well. I'd had a trip. I'd been, I'd traveled for the first time, like properly traveled. Yeah. I went to stay with my friend in India. Wow. And I was like, the world is out there. I'm about to get it. Yeah. You know, you could literally, I don't think you could have stopped me if you tried. I was on one. Yeah. So I go up there and I meet my friends, my boyfriend at the time and my friends. And we were all get piling into my boyfriend's dad's car. He'd lent me. I got my license. I'd had it for about six months. Uh, thought I knew everything, obviously. Um, and I got in this car with my friends and we drove to this party. I got the A-level results that I needed to get to, to, to law school, weirdly, right. was yeah. my plan. Um, and uh, and everything was amazing. I was on the precipice, Annie. I was on that precipice Literally of... on the edge. Like, on the edge. Yeah. yeah. Of adulthood. That's it. And of life. Mm. Like, girlhood, done adulthood ahead I just felt so excited about what was next and then we finished the party and because I hadn't been drinking yeah I was like I'll just drive Fuck it, let's go home because we're going to go on to an after party yeah so I got in the car all the friends piled back into the car same same friends I put my seatbelt on and I drove off down the road and it's a really quiet country road in the highlands of Scotland Again, it's seared into my memory. It's not very well lit, right? right? And it was this was about three o'clock in the morning. And I drove maybe less than a mile to get to this next house where we were going to have our after party. And in that journey, I was speeding. I was excited. Everyone in the car was, you know, pissed and singing. And mm. I still don't know what the song that we were listening to was, but I have a feeling it was The Light by Common. Because there's always, I have a funny relationship with that song. Mm. And I think it's because it's from that moment. But suddenly, basically, I lost control of my car. There was no other car on the road. I was driving too fast. I lost control. And I oversteered. I'd never driven a car with power steering before. Oh, I had a 102, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Peugeot 102, that was like literally just steering a truck. That's yeah. what I'd learned to drive in. Yeah. And anyway, the circumstances were just perfect. Perfect storm for a terrible car crash. Everything was going wrong and I just lost control of my car, spun it and I hit the side of the road and in the in that moment the car, the tyre burst I think and then the car just flipped into the field and rolled, 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 crashed and I was instantly paralysed from the chest down where the, where the seatbelt crosses over you right. in that point uh, where it hits your chest right in the middle yeah. of your, where it hits your spine I should say, mm. I twisted and the top of me didn't because the seatbelt held me. This is what they suspect happened. Okay. Right. And then, boom, the spine just went... Doo -doo. In a yeah. split second, it just it just twisted. And that, that was enough to do the damage that sent scar tissue instantly into the area where the spinal bit, the vertebrae had moved. Yeah. And that caused a block. And that block cannot be removed. Yeah. So, everyone else was okay. It's yeah, important to say. everyone else was okay. Yeah. 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 Um, you then are brought to hospital. What is your memory, I suppose, of 
the first time you were able to process what actually happened? It was a weird awakening in, in, in many ways. I've, I've been asked by several people over the years, what was it like at that moment when somebody told you you're never going to walk again? But for me, it wasn't like that. So what had happened in the crash is I had uh, suffered a lot of damage on my face. Yeah. So my face had been smashed into the window on the right-hand side, the driver's side. Yeah. And in, the, in, in that impact, I mean, without going into the gory details, a lot of damage had been done. And so my focus when I first woke up um, in intensive care was actually on the pain in, in my face and my jaw had been wired shut. So the pain was so focused and so centralised on my in my eye and my face that I didn't have the capacity to think about anything else yeah so for a long time I was focused on this pain and as I was regaining consciousness and slowly kind of coming round, I basically my lungs filled up with fluid and I was technically pronounced dead for us for a bit <laughs> and I had a extraordinary like near-death experience which I'm love telling because it's wild it's, but I kind of went wild. into towards the light yeah you, and you I heard a voice that. right I had a voice and it was my mum's voice and she was saying don't go don't go and she wasn't even in the room at this time I asked her afterwards yeah and pieced it all together and I had this amazing experience where I went away and I was about to go and then this voice said don't go don't go please come back to come back and I was like okay I'll, I'll come back and I and I did obviously and I, I love that story because it makes me believe in something else afterwards yeah. and I don't know what it is, but yeah. it's nice. Um, but then I also basically, as I started to recover, nurses would come in and they'd be doing stuff to my body. And I started to realise, oh, I think they're washing me. Yeah. I think they're moving me. But I, I had no idea what they were doing. And that's when I started to realise, oh, shit, something bad's happened. Something really bad's happened. And then I was piecing together, you know, you're in a spinal unit. What the fuck is a spinal unit? Yeah. I was, all of this was coming at me. And the clues were being pieced, knitted together. And eventually I realised, oh, what have you done, Sophie? What have you done this time, you absolute idiot? And uh, that's when eventually then I was told yeah. what had happened. So it was kind of like I knew, I mean, it's your own body. You know when something's wrong with it. Um, but the extent of the damage I'd done, I didn't know fully for mm. months to come because that would take time to really kind of work out and it was terrifying absolutely terrifying but at the same time I have to say it was weird because what happened was I didn't focus on all the things I couldn't do I was so pissed off with myself that I had done this that I'd interrupted my moment yeah, of yeah. freedom that I was like you dick what have you done what have you done to yourself? You've, you've stopped yourself. Shit, what are you going to do? Mm. All I could do at that time was go to anyone that would listen, you know, the, the occupational therapists and the, and the physios and all of those wonderful people that, mm. that, that are in the spinal unit. I said, right, what can I do? What can I still do? Can I get in a car? Can I drive? Yeah. Can I get in a chair? Can I get in a bath? What can I do? Because you have to learn everything again, yeah. you, from dressing yourself to how to go to the loo, mm. to how to manage your body. Because two thirds of it now you can't feel or move. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of complications there that you have to manage. So it was a very much a case of like, very early on, what can I do? Not what can't I do? So I didn't focus on that, which I think was really helpful. It's important to say that you were very determined to learn 
the hardest parts of everything that you had to do. So it wasn't like you wanted to assume that wherever you were going to be in your life wasn't going to be equipped or accessible for for what your needs. So you wanted to be able to get yourself from the wheelchair to a toilet that is an average toilet, you know, exactly. Or get, exactly. get yourself out of a bath to not have to need all of the accessibility things that would have helped you considerably in the process of, of learning these new movements. And looking back on it, I think that's kind of sad, isn't it? That I ha- I realised that the world was not going to be yeah. adapted to me. Yeah. Uh, so I would have to adapt. And I've cu- and at first I got that. I had the resilience in me. I had the I had the tenacity and the all of those things that I needed to get me through it. And I was like, yeah, no, teach me how to live in a world that's not actually designed for me. Teach me how to be disabled in a non-disabled world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I've made it my life's work now to actually make the world suitable for for people like me and say, why should we have to adapt so much? It's really hard. And in times, at times, it's actually impossible. Mm. So that's that kind of shift in perspective that I have. I think it's quite an ableist. I've come to learn that term. I mean, yeah, totally that. But I think it's also just, it's just innocence and, and your blind optimism yeah. at the time. You're like, you're, you're picturing your friend's houses. You're like, yeah, well, I'm going to need to be it. in that house. So if I'm going to be in that house, I need How to be I able gonna to... manage? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you, was, be, it's, you being quite it. pragmatic, actually. Oh, I'm glad you put it that way. It's a nice way of putting it. I, I do beat myself up a bit about that time because I did a lot of damage to myself, unfortunately. So you're right. All that mattered to me was I want to keep up with my friends. I want, they're on one, they're about to go to uni, they're about to go, you know, do that life that we've been dreaming of. Mm. We've been talking about it for so long, you know, oh, what's it going to be like that moment we go to a house party and there's no parents around and we're at uni Mm. and that feeling to us was so, I still feel it now thinking Mm. about it that like, and I was like, I I was robbed, I was robbed. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm going to get there. And I was determined to keep up with them. And, you know, thankfully I had this group of friends fresh from school who were there to piggyback me into raves and put me on speakers and like help me and get me there and that was my learning that time was so difficult because I I wanted to keep up in a world that was just so wild it wasn't like I was going back into an office job or something where it was Mm. all quite everyone was nuts everyone was traveling and trying to go places and I was like take me with you don't leave me yeah and and so I did and so you're right so it was all about how do I go to the loo in a student house how do I go to a house party house parties Annie house parties (laughs) in a wheelchair are you mad it was like no you can't get in the front door let alone have fun and and then also obviously young students attitudes you know my my peers Mm. we hadn't been exposed to a lot of the world we were still kids we hadn't seen a lot of disability hadn't Mm. been in that environment so you know thankfully People were kind and welcoming, but mm. also everyone was like, what are you doing? And, I'm, and as I said, I did a bit of damage, you know, I, I did damage myself. I what, did in damage, that time? Yeah, physically I right. did because I just didn't look after myself because I wanted desperately to keep up. And actually the reality is if you've got a spinal injury, you can't be up three days in a row and yeah. party all night. You just, you yeah. can, you can, but there'll be a consequence to it. And I burnt the candles at both ends. You know, I really wanted to to keep up and go, go, go. And that's in my nature. So it was, it was, it was challenging. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Your friends in the book just, they feel like such an integral part to your mental health in terms of coming through this and coming out the other side and there's a moment where your friend is it is it boner which yeah (laughs) (laughs) is it boner who brings you to the shopping center for the first time so so there's this description that you said of um people moving away from you like pigeons from a dog in the shopping center can you help people to like understand what that was like going out to the public for the first time and really seeing in this very kind of raw way people's reactions to you that moment oh boner god i love her so this is my best pal at the time i have been let out of hospital and try and imagine this little 18 year old thing i was so scrawny and like covered in bruises and i I didn't know my identity anymore i certainly wasn't the girl i was before who would just walk around like she owned the place i was now this little meek little tiny thing in this wheelchair and my mate Bona, Antonia's her name, but her nickname was Bona. We went to this shopping centre and we chose a shopping centre because it would be flat. It was an assault is the only way I could describe it, I think, is the, an assault on all of my senses. I couldn't believe the reactions that I was fat facing. And I really wanted to paint this picture in the book, Annie, because I think there's sometimes people really assume that the biggest barriers we face are the obvious ones like lack of access, no sure. ramps, no mm. you know steps or, or gravel. But actually, I soon realized that the biggest barriers that I would be facing would be people, attitudes. Mm. And so off I go into this shopping center and I got the, a, a full range of reactions, whether it be from young kids pointing and staring, which I have no problem with, by the way. I think that's really innocent and sweet, but Mm. pointing and staring, but their parents grabbing them, get out of her way. Sorry, love, you know, apologizing that their children exist and that their children are curious. curious And uh, and I was there that sort of almost like a freak show. Mm. I felt, I was like, oh no, that's okay. Uh, And then, but Bone is pushing me and uh, we're kind of rushing through this crowd and every encounter had its own unique sort of almost ableism entangled in it so the yeah, next yeah. one would be young girls kind of almost feeling sorry for me I remember there there were two two teenage girls that couldn't have been that much different in age to me and bone and I remember them looking at me going god that's just so sad and I was like oh god people feel sorry for me oh shit and, and then there was an old man kind of laughing about the fact that he was going to be in a wheelchair at some point I was like shit now I'm like an old person and then all the while there were all these people sort of scattering from me yeah kind of getting out of my way and I remember just thinking oh my god what is this life gonna be that yeah. I'm yeah. so different and my lived experience of, of being a young woman that would walk into a room and I didn't turn heads or anything but I certainly didn't get turned, look, people look away in yeah. fear or dis, or disgust or mm. or um, embarrassment or something. But now I was like, I was either invisible or the center of attention. And it was absolutely terrifying. I was so grateful for my friend. I was just like, Bona, 
you can't leave me. You mm. literally can't leave me. You're like my armor, man. Mm. Like I, I need you because she was my pal, and as well, she also saw me as me still, and I needed that lens. You know, I needed yeah. someone to yeah. say, "You're still you in there. It's cool. We got you." Mm. And that's why I hung on to my friends for dear life. They were like a lifeline, and I was like, "I don't think I can do this." And she was like, "Of course you bloody can. You'll be fine." She was so like that with me, yeah, and I needed that too. When I got older um, and I started to accept the situation that I was in and started to find my identity without them and yeah. work out who I was. And then I get to an older age and I realized that one of the things that had happened is that I had tried so hard to make my pals not see me as disabled. Like, don't, I'm no different to you. I'm the same. I can keep up. Don't yeah. let me go. Don't, let, don't mm. leave me behind. I'm here too. But actually I realized that in not, in not letting them see my disability, my disability was not being understood. I became more proud of my disability. And I, and I became more, this is actually part of my identity. And actually, this is who I am. And if you can't see it, then you can't see me. Yeah. And I started to realize some of the things that I needed in friendships that yeah. were different when I was younger. Yeah. And so those friendships that got me through then slowly changed. And mm. new friendships came along that were as important as as friendships always are I needed my disability to be recognized I wanted my friends not to drag me into clubs that were inaccessible but to ring ahead and say are you accessible and check for me and I if not allyship. why not yeah right yeah right yeah yeah but, but at first I was like I'm not going to get in your way I don't want this my lived experience to impact yours I'm mm. not going to disable you but now I'm like no I want my friends to understand this way of living and and help me in it and support me with it because it's such a great life I live and I I love the perspective I've got and I want to share it So you go home to your house, your gorgeous house, which sounds like this idyllic place in the middle of this forest, really cozy and home and your family are all there and you realize when you get there that this is just the absolute most inaccessible place for you. You had no agency, you had no control because it wasn't accessible. And it was a very sad moment. And I really get that and frustrating because you just want to do your own thing. You want to be help, help out around the house and all of that. What happened next? They did adapt the house, Annie, but not as like not as you'd think it was an old house yeah and actually those adaptations took a long time so I was bumping up and down the stairs on my bum for the first I think mum was helping me get up and down the stairs on my bum for like six months or something until we could get a stair lift put in one of those old mm. you know mm. uh, granny stair lifts yeah so I came out of hospital and I lived with them for about a year uh just getting my shit together yeah but I had as I mentioned earlier I had my plans was to go to law school and I quickly scrapped that. I was like, no, I want to do what I love. And I love making art. But I always it, do. Isn't that amazing? Because yeah, you, would have, you would have had to go through four years of law school yes. and then realize. This like, is what I'm saying. There's the unexpected benefits of all of the things yeah. that happened. Like, right. I know this is why I look back on it. I'm like, it wasn't the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah. These amazing things came from it. So I went to art school, but I encountered my first block. College were like, nope, you can't come. And me and my mum were like, what? And they're like, no, it's not accessible. It can't come. So that was the first time I realized, wow. oh, hold on a minute. I've got a fight on my hands. My life is going to be in an ongoing battle. And I need to quickly know my rights. I need to know where the law's at. So I got a lawyer and they helped fight me fight that under the Disability Discrimination Act, that as it was then. The college got changed and uh, a disabled toilet got put in and I got to go to college. And that was Amazing. all cool. And then, then I went to Goldsmiths to go to 
to uni and do a fine art at Goldsmiths. And actually that's when I left home and I moved to London. But I spent a year in Brighton doing my foundation, which was a baptism of fire, as you can imagine. Brighton as a student, oh it was amazing, yeah. but full on. Mm. Uh, very challenging, but I was still living at home. So I had that kind of safety net, like one foot nice. in the comfort zone, yeah. one foot out. I found it really hard to make friends as a disabled person. Like I didn't know how to be. And a lot of the students were pretty tough to crack. All these events that were going on, I didn't really get invited because I was mm. just assumed I wouldn't want to go. So I went from being this kind of, you know, popular kid and nice with good with a good group of mates at school to mm. go into this new environment at college and really struggling to be myself but that's when that beyond boundaries bbc show then came around so at the same time as i started art college i started into tv so it was all kind of happening but then i got boom another interruption a massive change happened where i basically got um a what we call a pressure sore but it's not technically a pressure sore in the area where i sit uh, so on my bum bone, I got a splinter right. underneath my bum bone yeah. and I didn't know it was there and it got infected and I ended up in hospital and I had to have this infection, this abscess that had formed removed. Right. And then I had to go and lie on my stomach to let it heal. And the process of that healing basically would come to take three years. So I had to lie on my stomach for almost three years. Oh my God. Yeah, it got really, really hard, really hard. So that's what I mean, that kind of the, the accident and the injury and the crash was like, mm, what happens next in my life has been really challenging and harder. And that was the, the hardest time of my life. So I had to leave uni. I had to leave my friends behind. I was at my mum's on the bed for nearly yeah, the best part of three years, um, waiting for it to heal. Bed rest, as we call it. What are your memories of that time? Horrendous. Yeah. Like it was the hardest time of my life and it was the worst experience I can imagine. It's hard for anyone who has to go through things like bed rest. Um, but I think when you're someone like me who literally cannot sit still, yeah, I, I was destroyed really actually. Um, but I found art a lot and I come to discover Frida Kahlo at that time, at the painter. Yes. And I got really into painting and I just painted and painted and painted like Frida did when she was on bed rest. So um, you were able to lie down and have the... The canvas, the canvas under the bed on, below you so and I'd be looking over the bed yeah. like this and I'd paint and then I all the blood would rush to my hands and I'd have to stop for a bit and then I'd move rest and then so I just but I just lay on my stomach yeah it was really challenging but the impetus again for fuck it when you get off this you are not stopping go girl go 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 it kept being like I'm going I'm going stop I'm going I'm going stop that was life yeah. kept doing that to me but then I basically I got off that bed rest and that was me off and I haven't stopped since. This is the thing about being a wheelchair user is that people think the wheelchair is limiting. But actually, you know, I, I having spent time where I can't even get in my wheelchair, when I'm in it, I'm like, this thing is my freedom. Yeah. I am free to move. Wheelchairs are liberating, you yeah. know. They, there's a perception that they're very confining or disabling but mm. actually I, I most wheelchair users I know certainly feel nah no way wheelchairs get you out and about and you can go places of course they have their limitations steps don't help but with the world becoming more accessible you don't feel disabled if your environment isn't disabling Well, speaking of that, you, you really went places and you, you know, you've been all over the world. You've done um, 
team VE hosting for the Paralympics. Um, and that's a really interesting conversation in itself because in the book you describe just how the world seemed to open up completely for you as a disabled person um, around then and how it changed your own viewpoint of your ableism. I know you've touched on that. What was it like during the Paralympics to be a wheelchair user? Do you remember that summer, that yeah. summer in London? It was, there was something in the air. Do you remember it was the Jubilee and everything and the weather was amazing. Yeah. And I've been living in London at that point for about 10 years and just kind of getting on with my life. I love TV. I wanted to work in TV, but there was no opportunity to work in TV really for someone like me. They kept saying, every time you tried to work on TV as a wheelchair user, they kept saying, yeah, but why, why you? Surely you only want to do stuff around disability. I don't know. There was this real kind of attitude. You couldn't break through. Small-minded. Just couldn't yeah. get through. So I had kind of gone, oh, I'll just paint. I'll just make art. That's what I'll do. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I was cracking on with life. And then suddenly I will never forget it. This advert for the Paralympics came on and it was the superhuman advert. And I was sitting there in my flat and I got goosebumps. I literally was like, it was filmed not far from where I lived. There were all these disabled people. I'd never seen disabled people represented like that. I was like, what mm. is going on? And remember the Chuck D, Public Enemy, this music that went with it. Thank you for letting us be ourselves. It came on mm. and I was like, transfixed. I watched the advert loads and mm. loads of times. Mm. And uh, I thought, right, I want to be part of this. I and was what the, was the superhuman line? Forget everything you know about what it means to be human. This is the superhumans. And it was the introduction of Amazing. the great British Paralympic yeah. team. And in comes Ellie, uh, Ellie Simmons and, you mm. know, Hannah Cockcroft and Johnny mm. Peacock. And they're all rocking out with their disabilities on full show, like unapologetic. Yeah. We are here. And I was blown away. I was like, right, this is it. This is the inclusion revolution, I yeah. thought. Yeah. And I was like, right, I want to be part of this. So I, I called Channel 4 and I was like, hello, please, please, can I... Please, can I be a part of it, please? Mm. And at this point, I'd done a bit of telly. I'd made a couple of documentaries for the BBC. So they knew who I was. And they were like, yeah, okay, you can have a job. So my yeah. job was to read the weather for the Paralympics. And I'd sit in the Olympic yeah. Park in London, in Stratford, with a little sign, either with a with the sun on it or a cloud on it. And that was it. Yeah. It was like a, yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. I was over the moon. <laughs> I was like, I'm here, I've arrived. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy. But the reason why it was so amazing, actually, aside from getting this opportunity to be part of it on TV, in the real world, I was rolling around London and for the first time, people weren't yeah. being like, oh, wheelchair user, get out of the way. They were like, hey, what do you do? Are you a Paralympian? And I was like, yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm going to ride this wave with them. Yeah, yeah. I'm keeping up. And, yeah. you know, I remember going through Stratford and I and this little girl came running up to me and actually asked me for a picture. She, and she thought I was somebody else. She thought I was Hannah Cockcroft, the racer. Yeah. But I yeah. was like, yeah, I'm having it. I will take that picture with you. <laughs> and it was just so nice to be seen and not yeah. be like, you know, embarrassed or feel shame or mm. it was amazing. And also, obviously, the infrastructure around London completely changed. So the, all these yeah. tube lines were suddenly, you know, I'd arrive at the tube instead of being like looked at and what are you doing here? It was, uh, oh, this way. Because all of the, the TFL they knew, yeah, knew yeah. what to do. So it was like, my gosh, this world has changed. And I was all for it, as you can imagine. I was basking in it. I was like, this is going to be the best ever. But unfortunately, after the games finished, it was almost like a bloody curtain just got dropped. Mm. And everything just, everyone went home. And the show was over and that was it. And, and it felt like all of the wonderful change and representation, all of these things just felt like they just disappeared. And you started to see in the newspapers stories of the superhumans, 
you know, be, not being able to get on the train to go to work or not be able to live mm. their lives. And it was like, look, this is the reality actually behind this, um, this story that had been told at the time of, of what was happening you know and yes these are athletes and they are elite athletes but they're also disabled people struggling with the very same problems that disabled people who aren't athletes have yeah. to deal with and I think that for me was a massive wake-up call because I thought oh right there's work to be done here and then thankfully four years later when the Paralympics happened again in Rio I got the job to be one of the lead anchors and that's when my life completely changed not only had I got this job, but what I also got was a voice. So suddenly people would listen to me when I said I was having a shit time on the train or that this yeah. airline had done this thing to me or that I couldn't get, you know, employment here or, or that I... There was all these things that were happening and no one would care. And suddenly they started caring. And it was like, right, here we go. This is what we do now. We use the voice. We, we raise your profile and raise your voice at the same time. And let's see what happens. Have you seen any change happen since since you've been using your voice? Personally, yes. And in our community, 100%. Yeah. It's been fascinating to see that how things have just been gaining speed. You know, people are galvanized, mm. I feel. And every time there's a problem, we now have social media as a tool yes. as well. So, you know, when I was talking about TV being a tool, mm. I didn't have social media back when I was first injured. TV was the place to go mm. if you wanted to change ideas and change perceptions and talk about stuff. Now we have social media. We don't need the gatekeepers to let us in. We can tell everyone what's going on. Yes. And so there are some amazing influencers and advocates in my community out there changing the world. And and it's extraordinary to watch. And I'm so lucky to be part of this community. I think they're, I'm biased, but I think they're the best community <laughs> in the world. It is, you know, the disabled community it intersects with every other community it's the one community that anyone can be a part of and probably everyone will be at some yeah. point in their lives do you know Annie I, I was thinking about this I was listening to a podcast that you did recently and you talked about being the only woman in a man's world yeah. and how that's been for you so you were always like wanting to prove yourself you brought a crowd with you to a dance floor that was entirely new and like mm. how you felt I liken that to what it's like to be the disabled person. We're a minority. We've got a lot to prove to the non-disabled. We've got lots to prove. We've got lots to tell you about. I genuinely feel that the world would be a better place if we had more disabled leaders. Because I feel like disabled people see the world from such a marginalised perspective and such a unique perspective. Yeah. And they have such an abundance of such wonderful traits like creativity and resilience and you know mm. you have to be so strong and brave and the people I've been around who have these traits I just like I wish you ran the world I do like Sinead Burke you know her oh, you, she's, oh she's amazing there you go she's been on this podcast as has a girl called Grace Spence Green who I was so inspired by I'm not sure if you know about her she's a she's a doctor she had a very similar experience to you in that in the nature of her accident she was in her early 20s and it was sudden and it changed her life forever a spinal cord injury as well she talked about this moment, right, of empowerment for her when she learned how to sit in other people's discomfort. Yeah. And she learned, she learned, this is not my responsibility. The way you are reacting to me is not mine yeah. to have to worry about. This kind of shift in her mindset of, no, 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 this is empowering for me. You're the one who's awkward. You're the one who's uncomfortable. I'm fine. Yeah. And how that changed a lot for her. I love Grace. Her story is extraordinary. Um, extraordinary, yeah. Yeah. I remember the moment when I stopped caring about other people's 
awkwardness around disability. I, I couldn't get over it when I first encountered it. I was the elephant in the room, you know, and how yeah. did I need to navigate that? Yeah. And then you become so capable of being able to go into any other space where discomfort is and you you're okay yeah there is a turning point you stop caring about how awkward people feel do you know around what? Make you it make you a great interviewer when you know when you well, do more of that it will well, make you, know you an amazing interviewer it's really interesting you say that Annie because I have just started a show and um, I'm really actually so excited about it going out because it's my own show it's called living wild how, how to change your life it's a show about people who've radically changed their lives and gone and done something like shifted from one life to another life yeah and they're completely different and and how do they do that and I thought this is where I have a skill as a presenter yes. but you know going back to that awkward conversation thing I think the other thing about it is you have this superpower you don't care if people are awkward around you anymore if they're uncomfortable with your disability mm. But if you want to make them feel at ease, you have the skills straight away to be able to help. Mm. And that I'm grateful for. I can empathize with discomfort. And it's this bridge that I would probably not have had if I was just that arrogant little girl that thought she knew everything and she didn't. Is there a moment where you knew that you didn't want to change your disability? It was after I wrote my book. It was the final chapter of my book. I had this bizarre experience where I decided I would have a conversation with myself at my young age. And I think we can all relate to this, that there's a younger version of you that either you miss or that you hate or that you've got some sort of weird relationship with. Yeah. Do you know that when you look at pictures of yourself when you're younger and you're like, yeah. oh, babe, you've no idea what's about to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I thought, right, sure, I'm going to have a chat with her. So in the final chapter of my book, I do. And it was one of the, I just get emotional thinking about it. I'm surprised. It was one of the weirdest experiences because I normally, the book's called Driving Forwards because I'm always driving forwards. Yeah. I'm literally that way. And I had to Mm. stop and look that way. And I wrote this chapter in almost like a stream of consciousness. I imagined what I would do, not only if I have a conversation with her, but what would I do if I was her for a day? And the weird thing is, I get to the end of the day and I've done all this stuff, right? I've, I've done all the things that I wish I could do, you know, dancing or riding a horse with my mum or mm. whatever it was that I wrote in this chapter. But I got to the end of the day, end of this stream of consciousness, this scribble, mm. and I was like, I'd still want to be me. Shit, that was unexpected. And also I thought that girl that I was would probably actually, instead of me being jealous of her or me wanting to be her, she might want to be me. And I was so shocked by what I wrote. I, I thought that that's the end of my book. That's it. I've got to stop there because that's it. And now I've lived 18 years disabled and 18 years not disabled. Mm. And I've written this book at this milestone. And now I'm like, fuck, I'm in my, I'm, I'm at that stage again. I'm at that point again. I'm at that point where I was before. I'm at the precipice of the next chapter. I'm yeah. at the beginning and I know exactly who I am. I'm a, I'm a grown disabled woman. I'm nearly 20 years disabled. And I'm like, where am I going next? And it's so exciting for me because I fully embody my disability, my identity. I know exactly who I am. I wouldn't change it now, you know. I'm actually kind of speechless, Zoe. <laughs> I'm so like just floored by you and your energy and your the force around you and your strength and your passion. Honestly, it's... Wow. Thanks, babe. I don't know. I've decided to do this thing. I know this sounds trite, and I don't know if you're into all of this, 
But I've decided, I've decided to say everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to, and I keep saying it to myself, everything's going to be okay. Instead of thinking like, oh, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? I've decided to get rid of it about that and go, no, everything's going to fucking work out. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm with you. Thank you. Um, I've no doubt that it will. The last question we always ask about change is what would you still like to make? Now, we know Mm. we have we have definitely confirmed that you are good, (laughs) but the world around you. Yeah. Still needs changing. And so I know this is an enormous question, Mm. but, you know, I know you've thought about it and kind of made it your life's work. So what changes would you still like to see? It's a really challenging thing to answer quickly because. It's almost like I could pick an issue, any issue, when it comes to disability. You know, the big thing I'd like to change is just people's attitudes to disability. It's so limiting. People put so many limits on us. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, no, she couldn't do that. Oh, no, you can't. And that in itself is stopping us with so much progress. But of course, layered into that, I want laws to change, policies to change, infrastructure to change. I want employment to housing to change, like... There's just so much, but I think the override, the, the umbrella of all of it is I want people to see us and stop making assumptions because it's the assumptions about us that stop us from living our lives. And so yeah. I think if I was to answer it in one, it would be that. Don't assume you know, because that's where it's like curiosity goes to die, isn't it? You just, oof, oh, I, I know yeah. all about that. And boom, yeah. end, shut down. Yeah. But no, yeah, if you yeah. don't, if you stay open-minded and go, oh, I don't yeah. know about that. Can I ask you and listen? Then you yeah. that's where you grow and that's where the change happens. Sophie, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I love this podcast. I love what you do. Thank you so much. I'm going to be buzzing all day, honestly. Thank you so much to Sophie for that conversation. I kind of had goosebumps at the end of it. I felt so uplifted and recharged and so inspired by Sophie's kind of zest for life. You can now watch Sophie's program, Living Wild, How to Change Your Life on Channel 4, where, as she says, she meets different people who have changed their lives and built a life around something they love. You can also get her book, Driving Forwards. I really, really enjoyed it. As I said to her, she writes really beautifully and it's so such a detailed and granular account of going from being able-bodied to being paralyzed and it really does make you think about every single aspect of your physiology and just appreciate it I suppose for what it is. I should also mention that Sophie came to my rave. The weekend after we spoke, I was doing one of my club nights in London, the Before Midnight concept, which starts at 7 and ends at 12. And Sophie came along to that. She was actually the first person I saw. We got a selfie. She danced all night on the dance floor with everyone else and had the best time. So I was very happy to see her there. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you did enjoy it, please don't forget to rate, review it and subscribe to Changes if you haven't done already. Share it online i post all the changes stuff lots of clips visual clips from these conversations on my instagram you can find me there at annie mcmanus m-a-c-m-a-n-u-s and we will be back next week with more of course changes is produced by louise mason through din productions see ya Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.